0: Hi, it's Laura. Thanks for listening to What on Earth. You might have noticed we've been trying some new things lately. We want you to keep listening, and we also want to get even more earthlings on board. So whether you're new or a longtime fan, here's what we want to know. What do we do best? What should we rethink? What do you want to see us try next? Please fill out our survey. It's at cbc.ca slash whatonearthpod. We're listening.
1: This
2: is a CBC Podcast.
0: Hey, it's Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. And today, I want to revisit a story we first brought to you last September. It's a story that's a finalist for both the Digital Publishing Awards and the Radio-Television Digital News Association National Awards. But more than that, it was a chance to get a spectacular bird's-eye view of a new frontier in renewable energy. Hello from high above the coastal mountains of British Columbia. I'm Laura Lynch and today I've got a special report from this majestic part of Canada. There's steam coming out. Yeah. Specifically from an aging volcano named Mount Meagre. The traditional name from the local First Nation translates roughly as cooked face or very hot place. And that heat is evident even as our helicopter lands on the glacier.
3: Yeah, if we can do a quick stop.
4: Yeah, okay, sure. We're standing and we're right in the crater of the last um, explosive uh, volcanic eruption in in Canada, 2,400 years ago.
0: Steam streams from holes in the shrinking ice. Steam that tells geologists this mountain has what they're looking for. Superheated water that can become a source of clean, renewable energy. So much heat, the industry estimates the mountain has the potential to power up to 100,000 homes. The journey to get here took us across some of the most spectacular scenery in the country. Vast glaciers, brilliant blue alpine lakes and sharp peaks that drop down into deep green forested valleys. It's a string of volcanoes Mount Meagre is just one of them. Steve Grasby is my guide to the past, present and future of geothermal energy with the glacier as our first stop. He's a geologist and a research scientist with Natural Resources Canada and he knows this mountain, Mount Meagre, well after years of studying it. But he's not the first to gravitate to this place in search of renewable energy. Others began their own research program here decades ago a tale that Grasby loves to tell.
4: Oh, for sure. Uh, I mean, it's kind of a funny story in a way, too, uh, because this program that used to run, it ran for 10 years during the energy crisis.
0: We've talked about it on the show before. In the 1970s, conflict in the Middle East sparked concerns about energy security and skyrocketing gas prices.
5: The possibility of gasoline rationing has been raised in the United States. The chairman of the board of the Chase Manhattan Bank as Americans must be prepared to live with the Arab oil embargo for many
3: months oil, to come. its cost and supply made headlines
5: around the world. Milwaukee. Oil shortages may force schools to close this winter. Winnipeg. Transair applies for a fair increase, citing labor costs and a 12% increase in the cost of jet fuel.
4: The energy America. crisis. Emergency meetings and discussions go on around the world in efforts to find answers before it's too late.
0: And all of that uncertainty spurred the Canadian government to hunt for alternative energy sources, including geothermal. Hunting for heat hidden underground across Canada, from abandoned wells to dormant volcanoes. The program was abruptly shuttered in the mid-1980s when the price of oil fell. Two decades later, Grasby began looking into geothermal himself. This time, though, the focus was on climate change. But the scientists who did so much work decades ago squirreled their research away in boxes and files that stayed closed until Grasby came calling.
4: Fortunately, the guy who ran the program was an, now an emeritus scientist that came in once a week. And, and he was the clue, and he knew where most of the, the boxes of data were. And they were literally in some people's basements and other people's garages. So we started calling all the old retired people, or sometimes it was the spouses of people who had passed away It was just a a big uh, treasure hunt. And we we found it, right? We got all these boxes started coming in. We went to get some. Some just started arriving in the mail. (laughs) Just come to work and there's stacks of boxes. The word got out, right? And people were just sending it all to me.
0: And was he ever thankful for his forebear's foresight, leaving him ahead of the game?
4: We would have been back at at step one. It would just all be gone and uh, we would just be starting all over again, I think. (laughs) They saved the, those boxes of...
0: I going to say, every day you must be grateful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With that foundation, Grasby made his own pilgrimage to Mount Meeker to begin his own project with newer technology and tools. Which brings us back to the mountain, a short helicopter ride northwest of Whistler. For this leg of the trip, we're heading to the base of the mountain, where past meets present. There's little to suggest we've arrived at a historic site where the first geothermal drill bore into the base of Mount Neger in the 1980s. But now water leaks from it, water that smells pretty bad. Another drill pump has become home to a giant wasp's nest. A metal fence has all but fallen down. None of it dampens Steve Grasby's enthusiasm. Tell me about what we're looking at.
4: Yeah, this is a, it's a wellhead, and that's just where the first original geothermal well was drilled in Canada. It was drilled as a research well. You can see it's pretty old and and rusty now. So it's about 40 years ago that it was drilled. It's the highest temperature as we know of in Canada, so it's about 250 degrees Celsius. Wow. So extremely hot uh, down there.
0: What was your reaction the first time you saw it?
4: Oh, it was just like, exciting because this is sort of like the mecca in the geothermal world, which is pretty small in Canada. People involved, <laughs> right? But anyone in, involved in geothermal knows of the this well and and so uh, you know, it's a relatively remote spot here to get to. A pilgrimage. It is. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> Honestly, for something that means so much, it's not a very impressive looking <laughs>
4: thing. Yeah, well, you know, but it's this uh, the promise that it holds, right?
0: In pure science nerd fashion, Grasby's excitement level climbs even higher when he meets up with another geologist, Craig Dunn, over a box filled with rocks, core samples drilled years ago
2: geologist in the exploration space this was Christmas. So there is literally a picture of me dancing in front of CORE because this helped us understand what we were looking this at for like, the development. Of this the is weather. like 10
4: years of Christmas is all, it's Christmas just, is all at once. Yeah. Yes.
0: The rocks are porous and fractured meaning the superheated water should be able to travel through them to the surface meaning they were part of a geothermal reservoir.
4: And this is the other kind of stuff too that tells you this is pyrite gold, mm-hmm. and this is what tells you that there has been fluid moving through the rock because it's depositing these little minerals along the fractures. And So this is all kind of the exciting stuff you hope to see.
0: It's good news for Dunn. He's managing director of a company that's bought the rights to mine for geothermal heat here. The Meagre Creek Development Corporation is based in Calgary. It's investing $250 million into this project. Dunn has no regrets about leaving his days in the oil field behind him.
2: My interest in geothermal actually started while I was working on a heavy oil sands project. Uh, I was on the project and I had an opportunity to read about a project in New Zealand that was moving forward, reading about the geothermal space, and I fell in love with the idea. You know, I got the bug. I drank the Kool-Aid.
0: He thinks now's the time for a renewable, reliable source of clean energy. One that he wants to turn into so-called green hydrogen to use in heavy transport to displace diesel. I asked him what the trigger is now to invest in this.
2: Yeah, there's a couple. The mountain itself has been studied extensively. Um, we've had some of the greatest researchers in the, the geothermal space in Canada looking at this project for so long. Then big step though is in 2019, we went back and realized that there was a number of new research being done on the mountain. And um, then the other part of that was that now we have access for power into the valley. We have First Nations that are open to sustainable energy project development and road access. So prior to that, even more remote than it is today, is that we didn't have road access into this site.
0: Obviously, as a private company, you want to make money here. How does this make money?
2: Uh, in the original designs, these projects for geothermal would almost always be sold to the grid. So the power itself would be generated through the heat resource, through a turbine, electricity to you know homes and electric cars. In our case, the market opportunity actually looked like uh, transport. And so how do you convert an electrical resource into a transport opportunity? Um, And the answer was green hydrogen. And that's really where this project started to shine, is looking at what if we could do something else with the electricity, uh, using electrolyzers to produce clean hydrogen, or green hydrogen with almost uh, zero emissions.
0: Okay, you're gonna have to break this down for idiots like me who don't get the science at all.
2: One of the ways we describe how geothermal works is a flywheel over a kettle. So if you already have boiling water, we boil that water to push a turbine. And pushing a turbine with a few magnets on it allows us to produce that electricity. So once we're at that electricity level, then we're using that electricity to uh, break a water bond, hydrogen-oxygen bond, and we're left with two products, both hydrogen and oxygen. That hydrogen is basically an energy carrier. So to think about it as when it rebonds back with oxygen, it releases energy. So by separating them, we're creating an environment where that hydrogen really wants to rebond and release that energy. And that's what we see in like fuel cell cars and trains and any of those new applications for green hydrogen or hydrogen as a whole.
0: Tell me a little bit more about your involvement. You used to be involved in oil and gas. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I think the term is recovering oil and gas geologist. But having spent almost a decade working in the oil field, I realized that the technology, the innovation, the entrepreneurial spirit that came out of Western Canada was an untapped resource for the geothermal space. So all that opportunity to transfer knowledge and transfer technology, I thought was missing. And I thought it was an interesting opportunity if I could take some of that experience uh, and knowledge and apply it into another industry, that we could really move the geothermal space forward.
6: Took
0: some patience though, didn't it?
2: I've been at this a long time. Um, but it's worth the wait, right? I think uh, there's a number of factors that have encouraged us at this time um, since the development of this project. We had a hydrogen office established in British Columbia. We had federal tax come forward in that time. We're looking at a federal policy for hydrogen. There's been a lot uh, that has changed in the last 18 months that encourages us that this project is very well-timed.
0: What are your buddies who are still in oil and gas, what do they say to you about this?
2: they're excited. They've seen me struggle with this development of a new and renewable resource. A lot of people go, and what do you do for a living? Or you bought a volcano. That's not true. I know I'm like, no, we've acquired the geothermal resource at Meager Creek. I have a lot of folks in my own gas space that are coming around to, hey, Do you need a drill rig? Hey, do you need resources? Do you need some geophysics work done? And it's awesome to tap into that extraordinary experience, even if it isn't specific to geothermal.
0: But it is technology that has actually made it a more affordable prospect.
2: Drilling horizontally, for instance, is something that is, you know, last 20, 30 years new. But, you know, we're seeing some of that in the geothermal space now. Some of the tools that go down hole that are capable of handling 250 degrees Celsius. So the technology means that we can drill faster, we can drill with more information, we can drill more accurately. That allows us to be able to develop projects like Meagre in a way they wouldn't have been able to do, especially not in the 80s, but probably not even 10 years ago.
0: When you say drill horizontally, the the word I think of is fracking. And I know there's been a lot of opponents to fracking. So if somebody comes to you and says, why are you doing this? We know fracking is bad. What do you say to them?
2: one of the primary things that we see is that we need a fracture system that is existing already has the word frac right in it so to speak that fracture system already exists here at meager creek so the motivation for us to use a fracking strategy isn't necessary here at meager we see that in the core we see that in the drill results
0: we talk um, about the First Nation whose territory we're standing on. It's, it's never been settled by treaty. So how does how does that play a role in how you develop this? You own the rights, but you don't own the land.
2: Kual uh, that's Mount Meagre, if I pronounced it incorrectly. Uh, they've been an, an integral part of this project. We engaged them right from the beginning of it. And ask them about you know their motivations and and concerns. Um, Dean Nelson is on site with us now, which is great. I'm quite proud of the fact that this has been an opportunity to talk to them about the resource that's on their property, um, and be able to address some of their concerns about project development in their territory.
0: Because you need their consent to go forward.
2: Yes, absolutely. We have an opportunity here to show you know how we can work with the local First Nations. To develop a green energy resource and have them actively involved in that process.
0: Is there any kind of revenue sharing agreement?
2: Not at this time, um, but it is something that we're open to and have discussed.
0: As Dunn mentioned, there's another visitor to the site today. He's brought the chief of the Liwat First Nation here to see it for himself. It's it's kind of
3: amazing that this has been proposed before. You know that I, I remember hearing different things and different projects, and but nothing really came of it. So being here. Finally, on the ground is amazing. Like, uh, to have a say in what's happening here, to see what is proposed and you know, what can be, I guess. Um, it always is a good opportunity to, you know, to see what you're talking about.
0: It's actually the first time Chief Dean Nelson has been here, even though it sits on his nation's traditional territory. Here in BC, companies who want to do business on unceded lands need to gain the approval of First Nations or risk lengthy court battles and potentially protests. I wanted to learn more, so I decided to pay Chief Nelson a visit. Hi Hi there,
3: nice to meet you. Uh, Political Chief Dean Nelson.
0: The majority of the Liwak people live about 70 kilometers away from Mount Meagher in Mount Curry, a village set beside a river and below towering peaks. When I arrive, the streets are quiet. The future of the Leewat, though, are easy to spot and hear. Sounds from a playground are in the air. And it's the young people, the children, the future, that Nelson says he's fighting for. His own past left him uncertain about many things, including what his role should be. He didn't always see himself as a leader.
3: My thing was being a labourer in construction, and that was going to be good enough for myself.
0: But then he took up a trade and other things started to unfold.
3: Wildland firefighting came along and that was a big responsibility to be part of the leadership on that and. In the winters
0: he started teaching.
3: From teaching came you know the community you know what else can we do like we're trying to make change in the in this school for the kids and in the community, I put my name in for council. I was on council for a few years, and then you know from there it went to the leadership role I have now. And I really like to be part of the opportunities that come along. You know, like this opportunity for major investment in in the future of the nations. We've been disconnected from the culture, from our our history, and so we are finding our way back. Like being included on the land, right? To be actually on the land in a different perspective, like being there as a Leowat, on Leowat land, like, you know, that is very important for children and youth to understand is that we have that right to be there.
0: Because for years, there had been all this development going on and exploitation, and you were never a part of that.
3: Especially the, the logging industry that you know when we were never part of it on any aspect environmental or economic or whatever
0: so in that context, what does this geothermal project on Mount meager what does it mean to you
3: It's opportunity for everything really having a say in what is happening on the land you know, that is the biggest thing for us now to be included and to have a voice on to do or not to do, or how to do it, you know, environmentally, politically, and, you know, that, those values have to be upheld before we now can agree or not to agree to, to have this taking place.
0: And you're still consulting with the community at this point?
3: Yeah. You know, values are, are being talked about and thought about.
0: I'm curious to know what, what, what people are telling you in the community about it.
3: Oh, it's mainly to do with the environment we have those laws that we have to abide by right and what is it for them like how is it going to affect them is it negative like everything else that has happened over the years or you know are we looking at some positive things coming from this
0: yeah because it must be hard for people to trust
3: yes very very hard because we've We've been on the receiving end of the youth watching industry progress through here without our participation or, you know, any kind of acknowledgement.
0: What would be the ideal for your people in terms of participation? Having
3: the say first and then being included in wherever we can, you know, any kind of work, any kind of uh, progression.
0: Do you think anyone in this community thinks they could be one of the engineers on that project?
3: I, I do believe that, yeah, there's, there is that growing strength in the community for people to realize that they can do whatever they wish to do.
0: So this isn't just about getting some revenue from that?
3: No, it's a whole shift in, in life. It's a, It's an opportunity for everything to be looked at. You know, I don't really use that reconciliation word, but that is the underlying tone to everything that we are included in all of that happens to us and with us.
0: If we came back here in 10 to 15 years after this, the, the, the project actually gets, un, gets underway and the plant is established, what would you like for us to see that is, would be different here?
3: A more positive um, place, like more stewardship, I think. People actually in the places taking care of the things and not just being the, the labourers and the side people that we have been. You have to have faith and you have to believe that there is positive things are coming. And that, that's probably the biggest thing is having that, that doubt about, you know, that we're being taken again, kind of thing, you know. Being taken? Yeah, just taken down the that path of, you know, while we're just using you for, to get to what we need, you know, that that's the way things have been, so.
0: Can I just ask you about um, how climate change has affected this place? What have you noticed?
3: We have seen the seasons change here, like the, the hotter temperatures. We had the heat dome, and you know, and we have to look at what we can do you know, as far as the environment. Whatever it is, the, you know, even this geothermal, like how are we going to affect the environment? You know, we have to keep that in mind because those are our traditional laws, are, within that as well.
0: That's kind of ironic because it's supposed to be something that helps the climate, right? Yeah. <laughs> so how do you reconcile and those two a, things? There's a balance
3: there, I think, that you, you take what you need and you know you don't do any more than you need to, but you keep you keep the environment in the forefront and you know that that keeps us balanced.
0: That concern for the environment is something everyone involved in this work seems to share which is why geologist Steve Grasby wants me to see what's next.
3: I oh, the instruments there. I think it's going to be better if we shut down okay. just for...
0: The helicopter brings us to another peak, Mount Cayley. Here, work is underway to test and refine the exploration methods to find out whether there's even more geothermal potential.
4: And these have been sitting here overnight, so... All goes well here. We'll
1: be moving them to another spot tomorrow.
0: Scientists from universities across the country are at we have work. Five
1: of these, and they are. So they measure really small
0: voltages in the earth. So the other part Even the PhD students, of the part of the future of the geothermal industry.
6: Image and map the um, shallower parts of the
0: uh, beneath the earth. So Canada may be starting from behind, but the potential is so big it's drawing people from around the world.
6: My name is Fateme Hormozadeh. So I'm uh, working on the geophysical data to uh, image the reservoir, the near surface shallow parts of the reservoir, and see uh, where uh, the potential uh, hot water might exist.
0: Hormozadeh came to Canada from Iran to study. It's not just a new country for her, but a shift in her outlook.
6: I'd like to um, study geothermal reservoirs um, because of the carbon emission of uh, hydrocarbon resources. So I wanted to um, change the path that I was uh, taking. So um, that's why I uh, came to Canada. Actually, in uh, Iran, as you may know, it's uh, rich uh, in hydrocarbon resources, and it's um, and um, the best universities in Iran focus on uh, studying oil and gas uh, reservoirs and uh, exploitation um, techniques. But uh, I had a goal um, in my life to contribute for uh, clean airs and these things, um, so I uh, started to looking for. Uh, opportunities um, abroad for my uh, PhD studies, and um, this project was amazing uh, and uh, match with my uh, goals, my life goals, yeah. Uh,
1: my name is Mahmoud uh, Muhammad. I'm a doctorate student at Simon Fraser University. Muhammad is originally from Iraq. He,
0: too, learned all about how to get petroleum out of the ground, but he's broadened his horizons.
1: Uh, for my PhD in Canada, right now I'm focusing more on um, structural geology mapping.
0: Remember that box of core samples Steve Grasby got so excited about? Mohammed's work is to find evidence of more of that kind of fractured rock
1: to help identify the best place to drill for geothermal. This fracture pattern helps to facilitate the movement of fluids, heats the water in the aquifers below the surface. Those waters will turn to geothermal hot springs. Each set of
0: research adds up to paint a vivid picture of what opportunity lies under this mountain. Steve Grasby and I chat by a small turquoise lake. It's really more of a large pool with melting snow and ice streaming down behind us as we speak. We're surrounded by craggy peaks, but that's not quite what interests Grasby.
4: People aren't used, I think, in Canada to thinking of volcanoes in the country, but we actually have hundreds of volcanoes.
0: Some volcanoes, like the one hidden here, are young, at least in geologic terms. And that means there's a lot of hot magma beneath the surface. In other words, heat to harness for energy, but only if you know where to drill.
4: And what we want to do is to find, is there ways to better target where you would drill another well under the mountain
0: Drilling here costs a lot of money, so it pays to be exact. To improve their odds of striking the right combination, porous rocks, lots of hot water, Grasby says they have new technology that lets them see the plumbing inside the mountain.
4: And it's hard to know where that is deep in the subsurface, so we're using new tools that can see into the mountain. Um, you can think of it like, a, like taking a CAT scan where you can kind of see, you know, image what's in the subsurface at depth. And developing a, a three-dimensional image of what's under the volcano.
0: A map, if you will, free for industry to use when it's calculating whether it's worth it to start drilling.
4: Yeah, and that's a big part of it, right, is uh, drilling is expensive. And so the work we're trying to do is to reduce that economic risk of, of drilling geothermal wells, because if you you know, if you drill a few kind of wildcat holes and they don't find anything or don't find the right spot then you quickly run out of money so uh, our work is trying to develop new tools that just helps reduce that economic risk and you can really focus where you'd put that first well into the right spot
0: why is government interested in, in leading the research on this
4: i think a, a, a big uh, aspect uh, comes from just the whole goal of meeting net zero uh, energy by, by uh, 2050 right it's a, it's a big task uh, right now, about eighty percent of canada 's energy production is is hydrocarbons like oil and gas and coal it 's all part of this this massive task of of re- reaching net zero and i don 't think there 's any one way we can do it so it 's going to be a whole spectrum of approaches and uh, you know geothermal will be one of those sources and it 's going to be part of part of this bigger solution
1: but
0: how big a, a role could geothermal play in getting to net zero
4: I would like to think a huge role. Uh, one of the, the big parts of it is that it's it's really reliable, right? So, the, you know, we have wind and mills and solar cells that are developed, but they only work when it's windy and sunny. So they don't work all the time, and they're not a reliable source of power. And to really make that a big contribution, you have to have ways to store energy, and which needs batteries and all these other things. But geothermal, it's uh, more akin to... You know, uh, like an operation of a hydro dam or a nuclear plant is just highly reliable. The power is always there when you need it. They have reliability factors of like 95% where they're used elsewhere in the world. And um, that's just for electrical production.
0: But if this resource is, is uh, like a small miracle of nature and, and, yeah. it, and it regenerates, why is Canada so far behind in developing geothermal?
4: You know, it's partly just until you see it, it's hard to believe it, right? So geothermal is used around the world. But I think until we see a first success, it's hard to, you know, to understand it's there. And even just to understand the reliability and how it can be integrated into the bigger energy picture. So we, we need these early wins and this early success. Then I think that's going to help it suddenly roll out much more quickly when the people out responsible for planning energy supply, I can see, okay, this is how it works, right? And they need that comfort level.
0: But sometimes, Steve, in the last few years, you must have just shaken your head when you thought about the fact (laughs) that we were down this path uh, fair ways 40 years ago and then it stopped.
4: Yeah, 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 and and it kind of stopped abruptly in 1985, but at that time it was a different driver. It was during the energy crisis and what why people were interested in, in it and governments were investing in research was looking for other sources of energy because there was concern over access to um, you know, oil from the Middle East and, and just energy supply in general. So now we have a very different uh, interest rate, which is looking for clean energy sources. For me, though, this has been the last few years have been the most exciting because I've never seen so much interest in geothermal in Canada. Um, now we have several... Projects uh, that are underway, that are active, recently drilled wells, um, several different new companies that have formed. Uh, the project at Mount Meager, we have a, a Calgary drilling company, so people with this expertise in drilling that are, you know, for oil and gas, but now they're applying their expertise to drilling geothermal wells. And you know, I think no one in the world knows how to drill wells better than Canadians, right? It's just an incredible. Um, Expertise that's been developed in, in, in the oil industry. And to see that application now to clean energy, it's a really exciting time just to see how much interest and how much activity is, is starting to to come. And now I'm just waiting for that first geothermal plant to, to make it all a all reality.
0: But there's another use for knowing this mountain inside and out, tracking the location of natural hazards. Hazards that could put a geothermal plant or worse, people and communities at risk. PhD student
1: Mahmoud Mohammed. A great example of those hazards are 2010 landslide in Meager, one of the largest historical landslides in Canada here. So that's why we try to study those landslides here. At the same time, if we build geothermal infrastructure here, it's really important to monitor because people are investing money in addition to the lives of people. So this becomes really important for the geothermal guys to support natural hazard monitoring. So, yes, it helps the geothermal work, but at the same time, helps the community as well.
0: It makes me think of something else Chief Dean Nelson told me. Mount Meagre is projected to have another huge landslide in the future. Living near enough to worry about that, he wants some certainty that what the researchers and industry know about the risks will be shared with his community. He wants to be prepared.
3: We want certainty on things, like if there's any opportunity to have some early warning system or a warning system that lets us know exactly what's happening, then yes, you know, we've had a slide there, a major slide, you know, and we weren't informed, like on living on the bottom of the valley that what exactly was taking place And But to have a system that would tell us, you know, especially now that Meager is, it's a volcano that could erupt or you know a slide that could happen at any time.
0: Is it kind of a condition for you for everything else going forward?
3: I would say yes. You know, that's one of the main ones to have that in place.
0: For all the talk about the hazards, there's still the reality of climate change and the hazards it invites. That's why underneath this leaky old pump, the promise of constant, dependable, renewable, and clean energy. Is gaining attention from scientists and investors alike. And it's there, waiting to be unlocked. It's been a year now since I, I flew up into those mountains and saw that old leaky heat pump and discovered what they were talking about when they talked about the promise of geothermal energy. And there is a lot of work going on across the country in geothermal. So we probably will be talking about it again in the months and years to come. But for this project, at least, They are still working on the study and the results of the study and the company is still working on moving ahead with developing geothermal there and the First Nation is still working to get the kinds of agreements and assurances it needs to give its consent for it all to go forward. If you want to check out the web story, it's by Molly Siegel, there are beautiful photos of the region there. and You can also see the video version, which is spectacular, it's there as well. Just search for old volcanoes, big energy. We know the news can be relentless and it's hard to keep up. On Your World Tonight, it's our mission to catch you up in less than 30 minutes.
2: When news breaks, our reporters are there across Canada and around the world.
5: We bring you context and analysis and sort out what's real and what's relevant. I'm Susan Bonner.
2: I'm Tom Harrington.
0: I'm Stephanie Scanderis. We host Your World Tonight.
2: New episodes every night, seven days a week.
0: Find us wherever you get your podcasts. you're listening to an encore edition of what on earth i'm laura lynch hi hazel can you hear me hi oh yay okay we did it and karishma can you hear hazel
7: i can hear hazel hi perfect we did it
0: well hazel thayer and karishma porwell are tiktok creators with tens of thousands of followers each who think the social media site can be part of a climate solution. So have you two ever
7: actually spoken to each other? We no. have not spoken have n- no. over the phone like this. Maybe on like DM or yeah. on Discord. but Yeah, funny, I'm but just
5: now realizing that too. I'm like, know? oh yeah, my good internet friend. And
7: then um, <laughs> actually, no, we've never
5: talked. <laughs> well, there you go. You, you know, say hi to each other. <laughs> <laughs> hi, nice to finally talk to you, Karishma.
7: Yeah, you as well. See, that's the thing about internet friends, Hazel. I feel like I already know you. But like, yeah, could you call it a TikTok relationship? Mm. (laughs) My (laughs) TikTok friends.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So clearly they know each other to a degree, but there's lots of us out there who don't know them. So I asked them to introduce themselves.
7: So my name is Karishma. I live in Ontario, Canada. I live in Waterloo. I started kind of speaking about environmentalism and the climate crisis on social media during the pandemic, because like a lot of other people, I found myself with a lot of free time. Um, And also I think A lot of the cracks in our society started to show around that time, and my passion was always around climate, so I just decided to start talking about it on the internet. In my real life, I work in sustainable finance, and I also am studying my master's in sustainability leadership, which is really exciting. Some of my hobbies include uh, thrift shopping, gardening, road tripping. That's me. Cool. Okay. Hazel. This is is
5: why I feel like we're already friends because I already know what all your hobbies are.
7: (laughs) (laughs) Hazel, over to you. Hi. um,
5: Okay. I'm Hazel. I live in Victoria, BC. I talk a lot about the intersection of economics and climate solutions, but I try to do it with like a little Gen Z sense of humor. Economics and climate solutions don't sound super related, but they really, really are. And a lot of young people are like under the impression of you have to either have a healthy economy or a healthy climate. And you don't get to have both. And I went to school for economics and I found out that no, actually, we can totally have both. And in fact, it would be better for the economy if we had a healthy climate. It would be better for the climate if we had a healthy economy that worked for everybody. And so I guess what I do online is try to make fun communications videos about understanding you know, complex economic concepts like externalities and elasticity and carbon taxes. So making taxes funny is my... uh, (laughs) I guess that's my tagline. Yeah, I I feel like economics and like specifically environmental economics should have the same treatment that science and climate science has had lately, you know, people to make it fun and interesting and accessible. So I guess I'm trying to be that person. And when you're not online? When I'm not online, I'm always online. Um, (laughs) When I'm not online, I do uh, website development and I've, I've been rollerblading a lot lately, so that's fun. Ooh. And I have a cat whose name is Blue, and she has not started meowing yet, but I know she will soon. So. Okay, thank
0: you for warning us. <laughs> 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 now, based on what you guys said earlier, I, I'm, I'm figuring the answer to this next question is yes, but do you w- to watch each other's TikToks?
7: Absolutely.
0: Yes. <laughs> okay. What What have you learned from each other? Let's start with you, Hazel. Ooh,
5: I was just going through your videos again um, to like refresh my memory. And I remember the, the video about All of the toxins that are in like consumer stuff that we are meant to buy and even give to our kids was like so surprising when i watched it and and then i was surprised again when i watched it again and like i feel like when i do videos i'm a little bit more like big picture and so seeing you just be like here's an example of something that you can do that actually makes a difference is very nice to see and i love seeing those
0: that's an interesting contrast karishma what have you learned from hazel's tiktoks
7: Yeah, I mean, well, thank you, Hazel. Always nice to be gassed up like that. (laughs) (laughs) I think, Hazel, your TikToks are super technical. And I think they do that important work of like laying a base of understanding when it comes to actually assessing what is the climate crisis and how does it intersect with these other systems in which we operate and we live. I'm saving Hazel's TikToks for when I'm at like a dinner and someone tells me that carbon taxes suck or, you know, um, how how can we, how can we sacrifice the economy for for the tree huggers? And I feel like Hazel's TikToks provide me with the ammunition to answer those questions. Hazel comes with the facts and I've always appreciated that. Oh Um, man,
5: that's, that's what it's all about. Giving people things to say at dinners.
7: (laughs) Well, you're both actually quite new to
0: the platform, but you have large followings already, Krishma. What do you think that says about the reach of the platform?
7: I think TikTok can be a hit or miss platform. Either nobody watches your videos or a lot of people watch your videos way more than the amount of people you might have following you. And it's never the ones
5: you expect to do well.
7: Exactly. Exactly. Like the ones that you put hours of like editing work in, those will be kind of meh. But I find that like if I see something that makes me angry, if I see something that makes me, you know, super energized to talk about something, something that I'm passionate about, and I just film something without thinking twice, those videos can actually do really well and get a lot of traction. I don't know, what do, what do yeah. you think
5: this? that is, that's so true. Yeah, I feel like the ones where I put a ton of effort into like scripting and editing and stuff, don't do amazing, but when I'm so fired up about something that I just read that I need to record it immediately, those are always the ones that blow up. Um, Maybe that's because so you're br- I guess that you're bringing your heart into it more, I think more that, than your I mind. I think that's what it is. I'm trying to do more of that now. Yeah. It's like it's a platform that's like for people to be informal on, and like it feels like you're talking to a friend a lot of the times instead of watching like a complex, you know, super produced YouTube video.
0: Well, what I think we need to do now is hear some of your recent efforts. Karishma, let's, let's listen to a bit of one of your recent TikToks.
7: A lot of the time people ask me, Karishma, what can I do to help the environment? But a lot of the time it's more about what you don't do. For example, it's fall time and there's leaves on the ground. Exhibit A, B. Steve? Oh, that's a pretty one. So the government, your neighbors, Country Living Magazine, whoever it might be, might want you to rake up your leaves and stuff them into plastic trash bags. There's a few reasons to just leave the leaves.
0: Now, that's it, that obviously, when you can see the TikTok, you can see the leaves behind you in the background <laughs> as you're talking, but you posted mm-hmm. that one just a few days ago. What kind of response have you had to it?
7: That one actually did really well, and um, I'm glad it did because it's the timely one. I had a lot of fun filming that. Like I was up at Kilbear Provincial Park this weekend camping. Um, And it was actually the first time that I touched my phone the entire weekend. I was like, you know what? I want to film a video about raking leaves because so many people do it. um, And it's actually much better for the planet to just not do it. And right before leaving, i had had a conversation with my dad who he already doesn't rake the leaves because we've talked about this before. But he was like, oh, I wish our neighbors didn't rake the leaves. And I was like, you know what? It's the perfect time to film a TikTok about that because it's seasonal. People want to see fall content. And it did really well. I got a lot of comments saying... I didn't know any of this. I'm just gonna leave my leaves now. And people saying, oh, Okay, pays to be lazy, pays to be lazy in terms <laughs> of, you know, environmental stewardship. And so I think it did well because it was lighthearted, it was, you know, festive. Um, fall time, fall vibes, but I think the main reason these videos do well is because it's really accessible for people. It's such an easy thing to do for the planet and Mm. actually make a difference in your immediate space, in your kind of community, and I think that just makes it accessible and makes people feel like they can make a difference in the climate crisis, which I 100% believe that they can.
0: Now, Hazel, speaking about accessibility, you recently tackled a subject that we've covered on our program. That might not be considered as easy to tackle as leaving the leaves on the ground. You tackled the Montreal Protocol. Let's listen to that. (laughs)
5: How did we fix the ozone layer? Uh, by panicking about it. (laughs) Well, the cause of the ozone layer depletion was CFCs or chlorofluorocarbons, chemical used in lots of different stuff, notably hairspray. In the 70s, scientists noticed this ozone depletion and panicked for about a decade before governments finally noticed. Countries came together and agreed not to use CFCs anymore in the Montreal Protocol, which was hailed as one of the most successful international agreements in history. Because of that treaty, we don't look like rotisserie chickens. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and what, what did you hear from your followers about that one?
5: Yeah, whenever I talk about um, previous policy wins, um, so the Montreal Protocol is a, a big one. Uh, how We Fixed Acid Rain is another one. People really like that because I feel like it's not really known why we don't hear about the ozone layer anymore. And there are a lot of like climate deniers who have theories about, oh, we don't hear about the ozone layer anymore. Now they're just onto the next crisis actually, this was in response to a comment that I got about people panicking. Why why is everybody panicking about the climate crisis? We panicked about the ozone layer, we're not panicking about that anymore. And so that was why I said, because scientists panicked. And so speaking up about these things, has an impact and we have been able to come together globally to solve a huge climate crisis before and we can absolutely do it again. And so the response to that was was very positive. People like hearing that.
0: Now you use a lot of humor in your subjects and in your TikToks. Is that important? Are you consciously using that?
5: Oh, yeah, definitely. I actually loved uh, your guys' episode about using comedy and oh, climate. Oh, Chuck um, Nice.
0: Yes. Canadian, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
5: Yeah, I'm definitely partial to that. I think that people, like people who are not in the climate movement, obviously, either see it as being very dismal, especially economics, or, you know, a little bit like sanctimonious, like everybody needs to go vegan and, and save the planet. And so using humor kind of makes it more accessible of like, this is something that you should care about. And this is something that, like, I can explain to you while having fun with in a kind of safe, non judgmental kind of a way.
0: Okay. And now, now, Karishma, you make tech talks as well about your Indian background. How do you think culture
7: and climate intersect? What a great question. I think for the longest time, I would say for the last decade or so, climate change and the climate movement itself has kind of been viewed as being exclusive to like the white space. And while, you know, I personally think that there's room and there's a need for climate activists of all backgrounds, I think that certain perspectives and certain actions that can be taken on the climate crisis that come from different cultures, whether that be from people of color, whether that be from Asian cultures, whether that be from indigenous peoples which I think is especially poignant here in Canada, I think that's been largely ignored. Um, And I think that's actually a grave mistake, which is why I like to speak on my Indian, my Asian culture intersecting with the climate crisis and, and intersecting with how to be sustainable in the first place, because I think a lot of these cultures had got it right for a long time. Indigenous people here in Canada, I can speak to my own experiences as an Indian woman and just kind of hearing the way my elders speak to me about sustainability, just hearing, especially my nanny, she's my maternal grandmother, hearing her speak on just her worldview Is so healing and it, you know, just considers the planet and people and kindness and mindful living. It's very much interwoven into her worldview. And I think that that percolated down to me and and to the rest of my family as well. And I think that this way of thinking should be shared with the rest of the world. And I think that diversity is the only way to approach the climate crisis because, of course, it affects everybody. Well said, Charisma.
0: But I'm wondering. As with any social media site, there is a darker side to TikTok. How do you deal with abusive comments, which I'm unfortunately sure that you get?
7: Yeah, I mean, I think especially on TikTok, it's much worse than other platforms because there's a lot more of these faceless accounts with no username, with no identity. And so people feel... People then have the courage to say a lot of things that they wouldn't be saying in person to anybody's face, right? And so they're leaving comments that wouldn't even be spoken out loud in like an in person public space. When I first started out on TikTok, I thought I had to respond to all of these comments. Um, I soon learned that that was probably a waste of my time and I would probably be using my time better just. Educating people on misconceptions or educating people on things that they either respectfully disagree with or don't know about. But when it comes to just like mindless hate and criticism, I either delete the comment, block the person, or just not give it a second thought. In the beginning, I was, it it really did get to me because it was the first time that I was being judged off of a 10 second video. Like you would never do that in real life, right? Like you'd never hear someone talk about something for a minute and then pretend to know everything about them and then go on to insult them. So it was the first time that this was ever happening to me. Um, And so it did hurt my feelings. Like it, you know, I, I was up at night at first, but not anymore. And I'm proud to say that. (laughs) And Hazel, what about you?
5: Yeah. Yeah, um, For me, I don't, I don't really get a whole lot of targeted hate towards me as a person, but I do get quite a bit of like the wildest ideas I've ever heard of like some crazy climate denial of like, you know, CO2 is good for the trees or something like that. And like, actually the earth is getting colder. And I'm like, my first instinct is to be like, take everything in good faith and be like, oh, you don't understand. Here, I can teach you. And then as soon as I try to do that, then they start insulting you. So unless they like really seem like they're commenting in good faith and they actually just don't understand, usually it's but, easier to just hit the block button. And I, I find it mostly in comments, luckily, that are easily ignored. But I, I think that a lot of it is, I'm, I'm not even sure where they get it from, the, the ideas. Just like small, small misinterpretations of the facts also travel so fast that it's impossible to correct them. So we have often heard on the
0: show from guests that one of the most important things that we can all do about climate change is just to talk about it. How do you think your videos are part of that, Krishma?
7: First of all, I, I definitely agree. I think climate isn't talked about enough in so many different spaces. And I think that for me, I try to make videos that fit into different niches and bring climate to that topic, whether that be fashion, whether that be diet, whether that be even like pop culture and current events. I, I try to link them to the climate crisis. So like the Met Gala, or if people are talking about Kim Kardashian, how does this all lead back to the climate crisis? But I truly do believe that it does all come back to sustainability, because a lot of this crazy world we live in is made up, like consumer culture is something we made up, and we don't consider the effects that it has on our very real atmosphere and soil and our trees and forests and our biodiversity. And I, I'm always there kind of poking my nose into situations where it doesn't belong and saying, hey, how does this relate back to everything that keeps us alive?
0: And, and yep. hazel, same question to you. How do you think your videos kind of poking my
7: nose poking my nose where it doesn't belong oh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but how do you think your videos fit into that larger conversation yeah. around climate
5: Um I actually try to sort of make my videos echo the way I would talk about it if it was just a friend um because I found that I was having a lot of these conversations of like, here's what I learned when I was studying economics when people talk about climate change and you know, I wouldn't use big words like externalities. I would just say it in a conversational tone. And so that kind of translated over into my videos. You know, talking talking about it in an accessible way is super important and in a funny way. Uh, At least I try. And I often say like when people ask me in comments what they can do, usually like the thing that I say over and over again is learn about the solutions, talk about them and demand them.
0: Hazel Thayer and Karishma Porwal. It's been a delight talking to you. I think you may have some new followers after this. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for having us.
7: Thank you for having us. This was so much fun.
0: And you can find Hazel Thayer on TikTok and Instagram at the handle Hazel is online. You can find Karishma Porwal on both of those platforms at Karishma Climate Girl. We've been following the saga of the broken food processor for the past couple of weeks and talking about how hard it is to repair appliances these days and how so many of them seem designed to fail. We're going to dig into potential laws and regulations that could make it easier to repair those broken parts and other policies that could help make your devices last, helping to curb overconsumption. But first, what on earth? Rachel Sanders is here yet again to share some more of your messages. Hi, Rachel. Hey, Laura. We've got a regular gig here. (laughs) I know, but it's just you and me. (laughs) We are still
8: getting lots of email about this. We've even had a couple of people offer to try to design and 3D print the broken part of my food processor. That's really nice. Thanks for those (laughs) offers. Uh, And there are other suggestions for climate friendly solutions as well. Moira Sarling writes, I suggest checking thrift stores for a food processor. I have picked up the same one that I've had for years and bought it to get a new and better cutting blade. That's a really good suggestion. I've actually checked a couple of thrift stores for my particular food processor, but I am going to keep looking.
0: And you've tried duct tape, but we got an email that suggested another simple fix. Crazy glue. Vicky Cavanaugh says she fixed the switch on her expensive stainless steel kettle that way. She wrote... That was two years ago, and it's still going strong. Tell your blender lady—I think that's your new name, right?—leaning <laughs> into that. Nickname, yeah. <laughs> Tell your blender lady to crazy glue that handle and let it cure for a couple of weeks. It will be fine. I love that nickname, the Blender Lady. <laughs> I might give crazy glue a try this
8: week. Uh, but we also heard from a few people about how we all need to learn to live with less. Yana Kalina wrote, What I'm wondering is why people allow themselves to fall for all the latest gadgets, fashions, vacation trends. Why have they bought into this consumerist madness, this endless consumption of so many things no one really needs, which is just adding to all the planet's burdens? And Janice said, so when it comes to the right to repair, I'm all for it, but completely realistic that it's just a drop in the bucket.
0: Very good point. And thanks for all of those emails. In a couple of weeks, we'll take a closer look at work underway around the world on right to repair regulations. In the meantime, Rachel, blender lady, if you're ready for it, we would love to hear more of your thoughts on this. Yes. um, What solutions would help you, Rachel, and help everyone else out there. You can get in touch anytime, earth at cbc.ca. Remember, you can listen to all our episodes on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. That is all for us this week. The What on Earth team includes Danielle Piper, Rachel Sanders, Molly Siegel, Vivian Luck, Matthias Wolfson, and Catherine Rolfson. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.